Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Next week we conclude this series entitled A Song of Hope. Today I want to talk to you, in just a little bit of time we have, uh, A Song of Hope in the Midst a weakness. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And Isaiah the prophet, in the 7th chapter, the 14th verse says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel. It was January 1975, and rain was falling hard in Cologne, Germany, when the man who had already driven five hours over 350 miles from Zurich, where he had just concluded a concert, drove up to the concert hall in Cologne. The man had um, been racked with terrible back pain for days on end, so he had not slept well. He comes wet and bedraggled into the concert hall and with his producer meets the 17-year-old concert promoter, Germany's youngest concert promoter, Vera Brandes, and they immediately go to review the piano that he is supposed to perform the concert at 11.30 that night. It was to follow an opera that was to be done. He had requested and the producer and the promoter had um, requested of the Opera House a certain grand piano, large, um, uh, high-end piano. There had been some miscommunication, though, with the Opera House employees. And so that had not been delivered. Instead, they had found a um, rehearsing piano that was out of tune in the back, and they assumed that was the one that was to be put onto the stage. A baby grand, not a grand out of tune, the felt had worn away on certain parts of the keys so that the upper register was tinny and harsh. The black keys were sticky, the white keys were out of tune, and the sustained pedals didn't work. The man looked at the piano, walked around it, played once or twice, his producer sat around that, and then basically said, this piano is unplayable. And with the pain that he felt and the frustration of the day, the lateness of the time, he goes back out in the rain to sit in his car as a 17-year-old producer with 1,400 people showing up that evening in just a few hours' time, I'm sure about in tears. We'll leave him there for this moment of time come back to him a little bit later. 
We're talking about weakness. If you had the view that I have right now, you would see the Quintanias, who I'm calling out without their awareness, in the back. I knew that there'd be at least one because we have roughly 12,000 children running around right now under the age of one. They have twins in the back. Raul, would you, would you, mind, just, just, would you mind just walking up for just a quick moment up here? <laughs> just, just a quick moment. I just, I just want a visual for a moment. You come on a little further here. They can't see up here. For those of you who have never seen one, <laughs> this is a baby, all right? Now, is that not the most terrifying thing you've ever seen? <laughs> Thank you, Raul. Thank you very much. I mean, doesn't it just fill you with fear? the idea of taking care of one, perhaps. Those of us who are parents, the first moment we have that fragile little one, we, we're so concerned we're going to break them. Then they get older and become teenagers, and we desire to break them. God comes as a baby. I don't think there's anything else in any other belief system that has the God of the universe, the creator of all, approaching us, not with lightning and the thunderbolts of Zeus, not with the power and, and, and rage of, of the gods of Olympus or of Egypt or of Rome, but, but as a baby, as a child. 19th century philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote the following parable, and it alludes roughly to the Song of Solomon, where King Solomon is shown disguising himself as a shepherd in order to woo this lowly woman. And in this story, he begins with this, suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his very kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort, waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she a humble maiden and to let her, uh, let her let shared love cross over the gulf between them. Kierkegaard says, for it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. The king, convinced that he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend. He clothed himself as a beggar and approached her cottage incognito with a worn cloak fluttering loosely about him. It was no mere disguise, 
but actually a new identity he took on. He renounces his entire throne and kingdom in order to win her hand. What Kierkegaard references in this parable, Paul expresses in these words about Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He comes to us in weakness to meet with us. Throughout time, we see God coming to man, condescending to descend, to engage us. Whether it's Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, all the various ones that we encounter in Scripture. And then after 400 years of silence, he comes himself in the flesh. Again, not in full powerful form, but like a little baby, just like the one that Raul right up to your first of you. There is a profound message in this that has to do with weakness and what our view of weakness is and how different that view is from God's view. N.T. Wright, the theologian, says that we live in a world full of people struggling to be or at least to appear strong in order to not be weak. And he says, we follow a gospel which says that when I am weak, then I am strong. And the gospel is the only thing that brings healing. I'm not going to ask you this morning how many of you in this season of time are feeling the weakness of the rush and the lack of sleep, last minute things that have to be done before the year end at work, last minute assignments that have to be achieved, last minute presents, last minute acquiring of, of various items, resolving things out. The increased time taken with traffic and, and all the other stressors that are punching our lights out. Or maybe it has nothing to do with the season at all. Maybe it has to do uniquely with your circumstances. And the things that you're having to handle, not just in the season, but throughout every single day of your life, walking in some sense of weakness. And with that sense, often can be a sense of failure. Because the world views weakness as that. But that's not how God views things. And if we're going to be followers of him, then we need to take his perspective and his view on those things. Paul continues to write in 1 Corinthians about his own experience. And he says in chapter 2, he says, So it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you testimony of, about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness. This is one of the greatest communicators of all time. One of the most significant men of all history. And he says, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. There's only so much that we can do within our own power. And when we do those things within our own power, within our own talents and abilities, the attention tends to focus upon us, and we tend to think that we are the end of all things. But when there's weakness, when there's brokenness, I 
I was in a conversation recently with uh, a number of other leaders. We were discussing some of the characteristics for leadership and a name of a person came up in the conversation and they said, uh, this person's still struggling, not necessarily in their relationship with God, but in the sense of his acceptance, there's a brokenness about this person. And, and I, I got quiet for a moment. And, and, and then I said, if I have a choice between broken people, ones who understand their weakness before God and his strength in their lives, or someone who is competent in the sense of their arrogance and power, I said, I'll take a broken person every single time. And every person in the room agreed with that, including the person who offered that thought up at first. If we wallow in that, if we sit there and, and just become depressed and, and torn down by that, then that, there's a nothingness in that. That's, that's, that's pure carnality. But if we can be like Paul in this moment, he goes on in, in the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians and he says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Some of us struggle with certain items at times. And, and we shouldn't say that things that we have failings in are necessarily as an excuse. But in this specific case, Paul's saying that this thing came upon him so that he couldn't become conceited. He had a lot to be conceited about. He's a Roman citizen. He's a Pharisee. He's well-educated. He's well-placed. He's got all the things that could draw attention to himself. But there's something in his life that doesn't work right. And that item, he realizes after a period of time in prayer, God has permitted in his life to keep his ego in check. That is completely counter to most of what we think of. It was designed to keep him in a place of an awareness of God's presence in his life and seeking that. We could camp out on that one just for a while. We won't take too much time on this, but is it possible that there are certain things that God is using in your life To keep your attitude in check and keep you aligned to him and in association with him, that if that was removed, you would completely walk away. He goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, backtracking a bit. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. This is completely counter, this next passage, to most of what we see in the church today, the drive towards... Now, I think it's important to be uh, up to date. I think we should be, uh, maybe not trendy, but I, I don't want to be unaware of, of the times or places. I respect greatly the Mennonites and the Amish, but I'm not ready to trade in my G8 for a horse and buggy right now. And so I think there's something about being current, being aware of technology and all the things that are up there. But if that's what we're chasing all the time and pursuing, or if we judge people lesser because they are not up on the sharpest trends or fashions or elements, we need to go to this passage of Scripture that says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. So a few of us may be of noble birth. A few of us may have been be influential. A few of us may be wise, but saying not many. Not many. 
But God chose the foolish things. This is just the most encouraging passage you could ever read. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Guess which ones we are? He's saying, basically, you guys are pretty foolish, pretty weak. And that would be a bad thing, except for the line that comes with it. He says, but I chose you. I chose you. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, redemption and therefore it is, it is written let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you go throughout scripture from someone like Ruth to Joseph, who was the, uh, uh, the second youngest of 12 sons, which in the economy of that time paid, period would have made him irrelevant, to Gideon, who starts off with 30-some thousand guys and ends up with 300, and Gideon himself is the least person in his family, which is the least in the clan, which is the least clan in the tribe, and it's not even a full tribe, it's a half-tribe of Israel. I mean, this guy's the least of the least of the least. To a kid like David, who's literally a kid going up against a giant, God over and over again chooses the weak things or the simple things. So if you are weak, if you feel like you are not the most influential person in your workplace or situation, realize God has a special, not just place for you, but a special plan for you that he chooses you. And there's something through you that he's going to achieve and accomplish. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, the writer says, I've observed something that the fastest runner doesn't always win the race. The strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The prophet Isaiah in the 40th chapter, though, says he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. And so there's something about God that, that he looks for not the best and the brightest or the greatest. But those that are going to be faithful, those that will respond to his spirit. It's become extremely um, trendy nowadays to talk about Churches like businesses or political entities. I've come across more and more statements on websites and other things where it is touted that the leader is, is, is in essence, by summing it up, I could say, is leading the best and the brightest to achieve the greatest. I like leading the best and the brightest, and I like achieving the greatest. Think of the 12 disciples Jesus had. Do you think that's what he was working with? When you get a whole gathering of those types, there tends to be more backbiting and attacking and, and, and leverage for position than anything else. 
I'll tell you who I've always been drawn to. Well, I do like the best and the brightest. I do like those that are sharp. I do like all those things. But from the time I was a kid, I was always drawn to those who nobody else would pay attention to a lot of times. I always had a gang. From the time I was probably like six years old, I always had a gang. It was usually the ones who all the other gangs didn't want inside their gang. So being here today, doesn't that make you feel really good? I don't know why I was oriented that way. But I think it has something to do with what I would have been exposed to in Scripture. What I would have picked up, maybe without even fully understanding, of how God works with us. You see, those that are not successful, those that are not trendy, those that are not the best and the brightest, are quickly rejected by our, by our society. Weaknesses seized upon, taken advantage of, and shredded. But that's not what we see in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul puts it in one of the most beautiful expressions, I think, that I've seen. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, this presence of God. For those of us that are followers of Christ, it's not like we are the followers of Christ. We are the champions. Instead, it's like we have this treasure, this, this presence of God, but it's in this jar of clay, something you would never really normally look at or pay attention to. It's not porcelain. It's not fine alabaster. It's not incredible china. It's a clay jar. And as we get older, it seems like more clay accumulates in our jars. And the clay gets a little more dusty and over time cracked. But the attention is not on the clay jar, but instead to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Prophet Zechariah said, It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, that these things are going to be achieved. And so you see that your life in the clay jar that you inhabit and God's presence in there is, is designed for a purpose, that he has a value in you in that. And then in the same way, he chose to come and, and, and place himself within one of these clay jars to come like a little baby to engage us in his weakness, to show his love and his compassion for us and to form relationship with us. So this morning, I want you to understand that in whatever weakness you find yourself in, that there is in fact a song of hope in the midst of that. That in every single moment of weakness that you see in Scripture, from, from Gideon to, to David to Ruth to all these different people, that there's a constant melody or theme that plays throughout all that. 
I don't, I don't really have a whole lot more to say. I, I, I guess I could highlight Elise Morgan. She's the president of MOPS, Mothers of Preschoolers. Any of you ever heard of that before? It's a great program. It's, it's been a phenomenal success. She says this, she says, I'm probably the least likely person to head a mothering organization. I grew up in a broken home. My parents were divorced when I was five. My older sister, younger brother, and I were raised by my alcoholic mother. While my mother meant well, truly, she did. Most of my memories are of mothering her rather than her mothering me. Alcohol altered her love, turning it into something that wasn't love. I remember her weaving down the hall of our ranch home in Houston, Texas, glass of scotch in hand. She would wake me at 2 a.m. just to make sure I was asleep. I would wake her at 7 a.m. to try to get her off to work. Sure, there were good times like Christmas and birthdays when she went all out and celebrated us as children. But even those days ended with the warped glow of alcohol. What she did right was lost in what she did wrong, Elisa, Elisa says. Just 10 years ago, when I was asked to consider leading Mops International, a vital ministry that nurtures mothers, I went straight to my knees and then to the therapist's office. How could God use me, who had never been mothered, to nurture others? And the answer came, she says, as I gazed into the eyes of other moms around me and saw their needs mirroring my own, mirroring my own. God seemed to take my deficits and make them my offering. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." When I was a kid, I grew up in Lansing, and for the first 10 years of my life, I was in an environment that, that was perfect in many ways. I knew everybody. Everybody knew me. My family was respected in the environment. I'd grown up with these people. I would walk up to the, to the elementary school, even at age 10, and it was kind of like Norm coming in at cheers. Hey, Norm, everyone say, hey, Randy, and they all knew me, and I, was, I had my environment, and I was, I was the master of my environment. And then because of circumstances I won't go into here at this time, we left there and we ended up in Grass Lake, population 200, pretty much all genetically linked. <laughs> we were about three miles outside of town and my friends were the squirrels. I mean, literally, I had a chipmunk that was a friend. He would curl up in my pocket. And for the next two years, this very social person ended up in a very unsocial environment on the outside of that. And I look and I wonder, if I had stayed in that environment, who would I have become? Because a lot of why I care for outsiders, a lot of why I care for the people I do, is because of the experiences that I had of that growing up. What I looked at as a weakness and as a deficit at that time, it was a very painful period of time. It wasn't a good time. But God used that and shaped me in the process. What, what weakness do you have? What circumstance do you find yourself in that is completely untenable? What pain is racking your mind and your body that you say nothing of any beauty could be brought out of this? Nothing. Do not underestimate your God. He is one who revels in weakness to show his strength and his might. The black notes were sticky. The white notes were out of tune. The upper register sounded harsh and tinny because the felt was all worn off. The, the, the piano was too small by far to fill the concert hall and the pedals that would hold the sustaining notes didn't even work properly. Exhausted, 
racked with pain. Keith Jarrett is sitting in his car in the rain when Vera Brandis, the 17-year-old, comes out to him. They couldn't get another piano in the rain to come into there that would not have destroyed it. They had managed to find a piano tuner so he could get it within some degree of range that other people would notice it, but Keith Jarrett had perfect pitch. To play on this piano was an abomination. It, it was unplayable. And so Vera stands in the rain and asks if he would come in, please. They had set up to record the event because Keith Jarrett was a renowned jazz pianist. And because they'd set up for the recording, and because this 17-year-old girl, who was so pitiful in that moment, Keith Jarrett gets out of the car, comes out of the rain, and comes into the building. And as people begin to file in, 1,400 people in this grand concert hall, with this broken disaster of a piano, barely within the tunable range of everyone else's hearing, but painful for Keith. With a back brace that he had to support his spine, Keith Jarrett, the American jazz virtuoso, sits at the piano and he begins to play. quickly, the people in the concert hall realized that they were experiencing something extraordinary. Because the upper register uh, was tinny and harsh, he stayed in the middle, which gave a, a, a soothing feel to the music. Because the, the bass was so messed up, he would do these rolling bass rhythms and, and, and ripples underneath constantly just to keep the fillness of it. And, and, and because of the smallness of the piano, he literally would stand up and twist and pound as hard as he could to get it to reach to the, to the people that were in the farthest regions of the hall. But this concert, known as the Cologne Concert, was recorded and has become the number one continued best-selling piano solo of all time. For the first 26 minutes, without any music throughout the entire hour-plus concert, no music in front of him, no notes, all played improvisational. This man played the unplayable piano in the midst of his pain and produced his finest piece of recorded music ever. I don't know what pain you find yourself in. I don't know what circumstances you are placed into. And if you continue just to sit out in the rain 
and, 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 and moan and cry about it and soak on that, then you're right. Nothing will ever be achieved. But if we realize that whatever pain, whatever weaknesses we have, that if we submit those before God, that there's something of his inspiration, and that word means to be breathed into by the Spirit, can come and embody something. There was something in, in that moment with Keith that I think was beyond his skill sets and abilities that was practically divine in that breath. Luke tells us that they were told that today in the town of David, a Savior's been born to you, and he's the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. A baby. How terrifying is that? God comes to us in weakness. He condescends and descends and stoops in order to conquer. And in that baby, in this season of time, was the very presence of God. Father, I pray that this morning that all those who are weak and heavy labored would sense your presence. That they'd realize the lengths that you came to encourage and strengthen them in their weakness. That, Lord, there would be a song of hope in the midst of that. That somewhere in this season they would recognize and see your very specific presence in their life. Not many of us are wise. Not many of us are strong. Not many of us are influential. But God delights in that weakness because then he can show his strength. Being a jazz musician and being into improv, the odds are if the piano had the circumstance of what Keith found himself in brought out something in that moment of extraordinary beauty. Life, people, is improv. If you haven't figured that out by now, we're winging it for the most part, guys. And some of us are given broken down equipment, pain-filled moments, and exhaustion, but if we submit those before God, He can bring something incredible out of it. Father, I thank you for your grace that sustains us. And Lord, we do not reject the circumstances you give us, but we pray all the more so for your grace and for your strength, for your song to come through our lives in the brokenness of those moments and inspire others as well as ourselves. I thank you, Lord, that you came as a baby in weakness. I pray as we enter into the remainder of this season, these last two weeks left, that God, you do something extraordinary in the lives present here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.